Turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 27 to 30 in our exposition of this book this morning. And I will be reading verses 21 to 34, context. Read along with me. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these verses, as we consider what the Apostle Paul was speaking to the Philippians, what he was commanding them and compelling them to do, help us to understand Help us to receive these instructions as they receive them, to understand them as, as they understand them, and, and not only as they understand them, but as what you intended them to convey. Help us to remember these words, to apply them to our lives. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words, and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we've been going through this letter of Paul's to the church at Philippi, we've, um, and I've commented on this, we've seen that there's, there's several themes throughout this, this letter which stand out. The, the first and foremost, that primary theme is one of joy. We've seen, and, and this is... Um, doesn't take much reading. You can look at many uh, study Bibles or um, commentaries may say this. Um, pastors and, who have preached on this letter before have commented on this, that this is in a sense a, a letter of joy. We, we see that term come up again and again, either joy or rejoicing. Uh, this is a letter where we get that phrase, um, to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, which is just... An, it's not um, a suggestion, that's a command. That we are to rejoice always despite our circumstances. Which leads us to, in a sense, what is this, the second uh, 
theme which we see throughout this letter, and that is one of contentment. That we, we can only rejoice if we are content. And we are content in the sovereign purposes of God that He has placed us in our current set of circumstances, um, oftentimes for reasons which are beyond our understanding. But we find contentment in trusting Him, that His ways are higher than ours. The third theme we see that comes up is uh, one of fellowship, or more uh, precisely and more accurately, um, partnership. This theme of partnership. We, we, um, as most of you know, we know that, that that term fellowship is translated from the Greek word koinonia. And we... Um, have heard that term before, but it more accurately means partnership. Uh, fellowship is a part of that, is gathering together, but it, it's more accurately termed partnership. And, and Paul writes this letter to the Philippians to, to thank them for their partnership with him in the gospel through their prayers, through their um, uh, their monetary support. Uh, they're sending money to him. Um, gifts, um, and through uh, their correspondence with him, that they're concerned about him. He thanks them for their partnership with him in the gospel. A fourth theme which we see, and this is particularly in chapter 2, is one of humility. Which in a sense, it it matches all the previous themes. Uh, You know, only... Truly, can a humble person be content? You you have to be humble to be content. You have to be humble to be joyful in spite of your circumstances. And also, humility is required for partnership. Because we know we're all sinners. And sometimes it's hard to partner with other sinners. Sometimes it's hard to get along with other sinners. Because we all have our own opinions about how things should be done. And uh, it takes humility and grace to partner with one another. We see that humility in Paul. We see it in the Philippians. But we most, um, most predominantly see it in Christ. As Paul says in chapter 2, um, to have the same mind um, in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not require equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Paul reminds us of what Christ did on our behalf, that we would emulate that, his humility, but also his service, his service to God, his service to the church, that we are, in a sense, to as what he did on the night in which he betrayed, um, was betrayed, he washed the disciples' feet. He took the lowly position. He served. And these are some of the primary, the main themes in this letter, which we see. But there's another theme, a lesser theme, which it doesn't show up. Is sometimes it's alluded to. Is really only explicitly stated in chapter three and verse twenty, that Paul says to the Philippians, "For our citizenship is in heaven." 
in the, this theme of citizenship is, in a way, what, what Paul is pointing the Philippians to in these, this passage for this morning, that the Philippians, they were, as I've said before, and as some of you know, and you, you can even read in a study Bible or background commentary, that the Philippians were a Roman colony. They were proud of their Roman citizenship. And, and so Paul uses that theme. He, he points them back to their citizenship, but almost um, uses it as an illustration so that they would um, emphasize uh, or lean more upon their citizenship in heaven as kingdom citizens rather than uh, Roman citizens and not to um, lessen their Roman citizenship but to emphasize their greater citizenship as kingdom citizens. And this verb Paul uses here in verse 27 is the main imperative or command in this whole passage and it's, it's packed with meaning that doesn't really translate well into English. This, this verb to only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This, this verb to live your lives. The Baptist Greek scholar A.T. Robertson writes this. He says, this term, politeuiste, it's an old verb from politis, citizen, and that from Paulus, Paulus, maybe you, uh, that's familiar to you as you, you hear of a, metro, uh, a metropolis. Paulus means, it's a Greek term for city. He goes on, he says, this term, politeuiste, is an old verb to be a citizen. It means to be a citizen, to manage a state's affairs, to live at a, as a citizen. It's only twice in the New Testament, here and in Acts 23, verse 1. And he goes on, he says, Philippi as a colony possessed Roman citizenship. And Paul was proud of his own possession of this right. Paul used um, his uh, Roman citizenship uh, on a couple occasions to get him out of binds. Um, he leveraged that. A.T. Robertson said this, this uh, term would be better rendered as only do ye live as citizens. And the other uh, occurrence in the New Testament is in Acts 23, in verses 1 to 2, as Paul is before the Sanhedrin, he says this, he says, um, looking intently at the Sanhedrin, said, Brothers, I have lived my life, or uh, lived as a citizen, in all good conscience before God up to this day. And the response was, and the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. He was using that term in the context of a citizen of Israel. And the high priest commanded him to be struck because, in a sense, he felt like he was a blasphemer. He was a traitor of his citizenship of Israel. But he also used um, his citizenship, his Roman citizenship, just prior to that to appeal to Caesar. And he uses this, this verb here to, uh, to point the Philippians to a greater citizenship. The Greek and Hebrew scholar Dr. Will Varner, he writes this in his commentary. He says, several Greek lexicons define the verb as be a citizen. 
and administer a corporate body, conduct one's life. The verb carries a metaphorical meaning of living in a certain way. The commentator Lightfoot, J.B. Lightfoot, comments, It was natural that dwelling in the metropolis of the empire, Paul should use this illustration. The metaphor would, moreover, speak forcibly to his correspondence. For Philippi was a Roman colony, and the apostle had himself obtained satisfaction while in this place by declaring himself a Roman citizen. We read that when, in Acts chapter 16 when Paul verse came to Philippi to preach the gospel and he was um, imprisoned um, unjustly and then they tried to um, secretly release him and he, he um, appeals to his Roman citizenship. He said, no, they can, they can come take us out because they um, imprisoned us, they beaten, uh, beaten us uh, Roman citizens without a trial in a sense. In this, I bring that up because this is, um, in a sense, a, an important feature of this passage and, and the meaning of this passage, the applications of this passage, that Paul it tells the Philippians to only live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as he says that, as he gives them that command, he wants to direct their attention to their heavenly citizenship their citizenship in the kingdom of God, that they would live as citizens in the kingdom of God in a manner worthy of the gospel of God. And in this passage, Paul gives us four ways in which we are to live for the gospel of God, three of which are explicit commands, and one is an implicit command, which is the first. There's three explicit commands here, which clearly stand out. And then there's one implicit command. That first implicit command is to be sure of the gospel. If we are to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, if we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in a manner worthy of the gospel of God, then we need to be sure of the gospel. Because you can't live out what you're unsure of. And this term gospel is thrown around and it's lost, in a sense, the weightiness, the meaning of it, um, just by its overusage, being overused. And we have so many um, sayings concerning the gospel. We have uh, uh, people that say, that's the gospel truth, or um, that's a, a gospel preaching church, which... Uh, points to the um, more the meaning of the gospel or um, you know some churches they call it the full gospel church is like well what is it is there something else that it's missing um, some people you know we have this genre of music called gospel music and sad to say that much of gospel music um, doesn't have a whole lot of gospel in it there's some great gospel music, but there's also a lot that's watered down, and, and you, you have to ask yourself, do the people singing that or listening to that, do they really understand the gospel? And I've met several people in my Christian life who were fans of gospel music who couldn't explain the gospel to you. 
And so in, in order to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, the f- first and foremost, we must be sure of the gospel. We must know the gospel. You can't live out what you're unsure of. And, and that raises the question, do you know the gospel? Do you understand it? Can you explain the gospel to somebody else? This is a basic question I ask to determine um, new members or prospective members or to determine whether or not they're a true believer. If you cannot explain the gospel in your own words, then there's a high probability that you're not saved. Because we're saved by the gospel. If you can't explain the gospel, then it would, I would venture to say you've never been saved by the gospel, which you can't explain. Now, it's true that there are great depths of the gospel. The gospel reveals all the attributes and perfections of God, and we will spend all of eternity plumbing the depths of the gospel. But nonetheless, if you are saved by the gospel, then you should be able to give a simple, basic explanation of the gospel. The gospel is just this, quite literally, um, that term in the Bible, um, euangelion, means a good message or comes from a good messenger. Good news is what a lot of us have heard. Good news about what? Good news that sinners can be saved, that sinners can be redeemed, that sinners can be forgiven, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God in His mercy and His grace sent His one and only begotten Son to uh, live a life that none of us could live so that He could go to the cross and die the death which we all deserve to die so that God could be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel we proclaim to this sin-cursed, broken world that they need to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can escape the wrath of God and be forgiven. That is the gospel. And we need to be sure of that gospel. We need to know that gospel so that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because if we don't understand it, there's no way in which we can live in a manner worthy of it. And there is in a sense that as the New Testament proclaims that we are stewards of this gospel. We, in a sense, are to protect this gospel. We are to proclaim it, but we are also to protect it and to defend it against error. And we steward it by proclaiming it. By proclaiming it clearly and accurately and precisely and faithfully we are ambassadors of the gospel we are ambassadors of the kingdom and this is part in part of the reason why paul uses this verb which refers back to our citizenship as as kingdom citizens because we are ambassadors we are ambassadors of the kingdom and We are to be good ambassadors of the gospel. We are to know the gospel. We are to be sure of the gospel so that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And every ambassador, every ambassador, you know, every nation has ambassadors. 
And this is not just in our day and age, but all the way back to the beginning of nations and kingdoms. They always had ambassadors. They always had representatives. In the Greco-Roman world and through medieval times, kings had what they would call heralds. Heralds, which would, would be messengers, ambassadors, to herald a message of the king to not only his own citizens, but also to those of different nations. We got to ask ourselves, would you consider yourself a good ambassador of the gospel? This is, in a sense, what Paul is getting at when he commands the Philippians to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that implies that we will be sure of the gospel because you can't live out what you're unsure of. And secondly, you won't work for what you're unsure of either. Because being an ambassador requires work. Being a kingdom citizen means that we will serve our king, that we will work. Work is a good thing. But we won't work for what we're unsure of. Paul alludes to this. Because you know, we ask ourselves, do you, do you need to be coerced or guilted into living for the gospel? Paul says this, he says, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. What he's saying is, is I won't have to supervise you. I won't have to come and see you. I won't have to make sure you're living for the gospel. You, you, you all can think of certain times in, in I'm sure, in uh, your careers or in workplaces, places where you worked, or some of you have been supervisors, been in leadership positions, and, and if not, you know, even for uh, housewives who've never had a job be outside of the home, you know what it's like to... Uh, have to supervise your children through their chores. Are you the type of person that needs supervision? Are you a believer that needs supervision and needs to be coerced to live for the gospel? To be guilted, to have someone looking over your shoulder? Or will you just naturally live for the gospel and do what you're able to do, giving your giftings and your opportunities and your season of life, will you live for the gospel? And that means that you, first and foremost, need to be sure of the gospel. You can't live out what you're unsure of. And you won't work for what you're unsure of. And you won't sacrifice for what you don't believe in. We need to be sure of the gospel, but we also need to believe in it. And there, there is levels of faith. There's levels of belief. And, and your level your, of belief, your level of faith is, in a sense, evidenced by your behaviors. As, as many pastors are, um, have said before, you know, show me your calendar and show me your checkbook and I'll show you what's important to you. It's true. You spend your time and money on what's most important to you. And if we are to live for the gospel, we need to first and foremost be sure 
of the gospel. That, that no one, we, we know what it means. We, we know that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is a means by which sinners can be saved. And we need to understand that. We need to embrace it. We need to grow in our knowledge of the gospel so that we can live out the gospel. So that we can live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that we can obey this command, which Paul gives the Philippians and he, by extension, gives to all believers. And it's not just here, but it's also in Ephesians chapter 4. It's alluded to throughout the New Testament that we are to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, which requires us to be sure of the gospel. So that's the first command that Paul gives us, first command in how to live for the gospel, the implicit command that we must be sure of the gospel. And then we get into his three explicit commands which stand out as he tells the Philippians. The first explicit command or the second command in which uh, we are to, how we are to live for the gospel is that we are to stand firm in unity. Stand firm in unity as he says in verse 27 that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending for the faith of the gospel. We are to stand firm in unity. We can't live for the gospel. We can't live as kingdom citizens if we're continuing to uh, uh, backbite one another or complain about one another or have uh, suspicions about one another or not love one another if we're divided we can't stand can't stand if we're divided and that is in a sense um, probably one of Satan's first and, and primary tactics as he assaults the church is to divide the church and it's, it's so subtle at times. It's so subtle at times that we uh, think ill of one another. And it's interesting that the way God has designed the church, that he calls people from different backgrounds and different demographics and different personalities and different abilities and strengths and weaknesses, and he calls them into one body. And it, it's almost as if um, there's the conditions for disunity and division are just, you know, they're ready. They're, they're already there because we're so different from one another. We, we can easily divide. The church can easily be divided just because of all of our differences. But God calls us into one body through the Spirit, through Christ. And we are to stand firm in that unity. With one spirit, we are to be united in position, in our position as the church, in our position as proclaiming the gospel, as being kingdom citizens, as uh, carrying out the mission of the church, the, the mission of the kingdom, that we are to be undeterred, we are to be resolute in our position as kingdom citizens, as believers, as Christians in the church of God. Second, we, we stand firm in unity by be, being united in spirit. We are to be united in position, then we are to be united in spirit. 
meaning through, first and foremost, through the Holy Spirit, through our union with Christ. That, that unless you're born again, unless you're regenerate, unless the Holy Spirit has done a work in your life, you're not a part of the church. You may come to church, you may uh, do all the things in church, but unless you're born again, you're really not part of the church. You're not united. You're, you're just a hanger-on. First and foremost, we need to be united in spirit through union with Christ as, as we are baptized into his death and, and raised in his life, so to speak. That there is union with Christ, there's union with one another, but also we're united in spirit. It, uh, and I think this is what Paul is alluding to, what he's pointing at, through the filling of the spirit. There's other co commands that Paul gives and other New Testament writers give that we are to be filled with the spirit, continually being filled with the spirit. And we read those commands, we understand, we understand those commands. Uh, if we're a believer, we desire that commands, but how are we to be filled with the Spirit? As it raises a question, how are, how are you to be filled with the Spirit? Well, you are filled with the Spirit by doing what the Spirit tells you to do, which is through the Word. When you strive to obey the Word, which the Spirit has written, and you strive to put off sin and put on righteousness and you're filled with the word of the Spirit, then you will be filled with the Spirit himself when we're in obedience to the Spirit. We stand firm in unity by being united in position, second, by being united in spirit, and third, by being united in our understanding. As Paul says, that we are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. One mind. As if we're, we're all thinking the same. You, you ever you see that? Um, you've probably seen other people do this. You've seen it in movies, and uh, um, you've probably seen it in real life, uh, especially with those you're closest to as, as friends or spouses, and, and someone says something, and you don't even have to reply, and they're like, we're right here. Like, you, you understand. You don't even have to, you know, and, and some um, husband, wife, some couples have been married a long time. They it's almost like they don't even have to speak to one another. They know what each other is thinking, where they're going, what they're doing. They know their behaviors. They know their opinions. They know their thoughts. And an outsider may be like, they don't have much of a relationship there. They're barely even talking. Well, they understand what everybody, where they're going, what they're doing, what they're thinking. And there's a sense that that should be true of the church, that we should be of one mind. That we should be so united in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of, uh, of the church and, and what God's commands are and the purpose of the church that, in a sense, we can complete each other's sentences because we know the direction that God has laid out for us. We are to be united in, in understanding the purpose of the gospel in understanding the purpose of our lives as believers, and in understanding the purpose of the church. This is how we stand firm in unity, united in our position, united in spirit, and united in mind. We are to stand firm. In this, this term, stand firm, it, it's almost, um, in a sense, a, a alluding to a, a soldier. It's, in a sense, a, a military term and uh, of standing in your position, standing in your rank and file, 
And even in our day and age, a lot of people that have been in the military, they kind of understand this, but it has a greater meaning when we understand just the type of warfare in that day and age that soldiers had to, in a sense, link arms and form, in a sense, what many would consider the phalanx as they would link shields and link arms and stand firm together holding their ground. This is what we are to do as a church, as believers. We are to stand firm together, link arms, hold our ground on the gospel, be the pillar and support of the truth, which Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15. This is a church, the pillar and support of the truth, the truth, the comprehensive truth concerning the world, concerning the, the fact that, that we're all created by God in the image of God, and, and yet we have fallen from God in our sin, that we, live, we are sinners living in a sin-cursed world, but there is hope in a Redeemer. We are to stand firm in unity, proclaiming this gospel message to this sin-cursed world. We are to be a salt and light in a dark and decaying world, and we are to shine that light. Third, in third command, Paul gives the Philippians, and by extension us, and how we are to live for the gospel is that we are to strive for the faith. We are to strive for the faith. As he goes on, he says that you are not only to stand firm in one spirit and one mind, but you are also to contend together for the faith of the gospel. Or some translations might say striving, struggle, contending together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. And he, he in a sense, he, he changes his metaphors. He, he, he moves from this uh, military metaphor to this athletic metaphor. Something that doesn't easily come through in the English, so we can uh, see that in a sense, uh, especially if you've been a soldier or an athlete. But this term contending or struggling, uh, uh, it refers to an agony, an uh, agonizing of um, struggling uh, as an athlete does, as a runner does, as a wrestler, as as, uh, an Olympian. Fights, in a sense, uh, competes. For the faith of the gospel. They, they, they strive for the faith. And we strive for the faith first and foremost, as, as Paul um, says in this passage, in our partnership. We strive for the faith. You strive for the faith in your partnership. Your partnership with one another. Your partnership in the gospel. Your partnership in service in the church. Your partnership in the kingdom as kingdom citizens. We, we can see this metaphor a little bit more clearly. It, you know, some of you, um, if you ever watch um, rugby, there's this, in, in rugby or Australian football, they, they call it the scrum. You know, when all the players come together and, and they're, they're pushing the ball forward, they're all together. Or we might see a little bit more in American football, but, or um, as I have uh, seen it in the military, of running in formation. You know, uh, in, in the military, you're, you're supposed to exercise a lot. You're supposed to run. But one thing we do, which is, can sometimes be frustrating, is we run in formation. And you're supposed to 
not only exercise, but you're supposed to stay in your place so that you're moving along as one unit in one direction uh, and all aligned. And sometimes it can be hard. But that is, in a sense, uh, a picture of what the church is supposed to be doing. Struggling together, striving together in one direction, with one mind, in one spirit, with unity. We are to strive for the faith in our partnership, in your partnership. But second, we are to strive for the faith. You are to strive for the faith in your proclamation. There's one gospel. There's one message. And we are called as stewards of the gospel. We are not to uh, change the message. We are not to uh, capitulate on the message. We are not to, um, in a sense, water down the message. We are to be faithful in our proclamation. We are to proclaim that same gospel which was given to the apostles, to the early disciples, which was then handed down in the early church and and throughout the centuries and to the reformers and to the Puritans. And now to this day and age, we are to proclaim that gospel faithfully in all the whole word of God as well concerning that gospel. Because Paul tells us to contend together for the faith of the gospel. And there is a sense where the, the gospel is as simple as repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And there's also a sense in which the gospel is the entire word of God as the word of God uh, describes uh, humanity and its fallenness and its brokenness and all the narratives behind that and God's plan of redemption and the perfections of God that the gospel is both simple and deep. We strive for the faith of the gospel in our proclamation of the gospel, our faithful proclamation. But there's also a third way in which we are called, in which Paul commands us to uh, strive for the faith, and that is in our persecutions. In our persecutions. Something that we don't like to think about, something which we would like to avoid. And there is a sense where it's not a sin, to avoid persecution, it's in a sense uh, wise. Uh, uh, one of the Proverbs says, uh, the prudent sees evil coming and hides himself. Uh, so it's not in a sense uh, sinful to avoid persecution. But when we are persecuted, we are to be faithful in the persecutions. We're not to budge on the gospel. We're not to be quiet. We're to suffer for the gospel. As Paul says in verse 28, as we contend together for the faith of the gospel, we are to do so in no way alarmed by our opponents. Don't be alarmed that that you have opponents. Don't be alarmed that people are opposing the gospel, that there is an enemy. Don't be surprised by sinners who are hostile towards the gospel. Don't be surprised by a sinful culture which hates the gospel, as nice as we may be. No way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. There's there's this, this glimmer of hope when we're persecuted. There's this glimmer of hope when we're opposed because of the gospel or living for the gospel or proclaiming the gospel. There's this glimmer of hope that 
This is evidence of their destruction, but of salvation for us. You know, one, one of the biggest counseling issues with believers, and one of the biggest counseling issues in the church is this concept of assurance, of assurance. And, you know, there's very few people, I've heard some uh, pastors, some theologians, some strong believers who said they've never struggled with assurance. And, and part of me is skeptical because it's so common. It's so common, and it's so common because it's so important. What's more important than being sure of whether or not you're in the kingdom, being sure of whether or not you'll go to heaven when you die? What's, what's more important in the Christian life than being sure that you are saved, that being sure that you are in the kingdom, that you're a kingdom citizen? And that, that's why the Apostle John, John wrote the first, first John. That whole epistle is so that we could examine ourselves and be sure that we are in the faith. But one evidence of assurance or one thing that helps our assurance is when we are living for the gospel or we're trying to live faithfully or we proclaim the gospel and there's opposition. There's opposition. I remember several times, you know, being a new believer or even a seasoned believer, and I, you know, question my faith. And then I go to a store or I, I, I interact with some people and I just hear foul language and I hear things and, and I'm like, and I don't want to hear it and I hate it and I feel bad for them. And then I remember I was just like them. In fact, my mouth was probably worse than theirs. But for the grace of God, I've been saved, and I can't act like that anymore. And that especially comes up when you proclaim the gospel and you receive hostility, when you receive opposition. That this is a sign. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. That, you know, when we, when we share the gospel, when we evangelize, our main concern is that someone would come to faith. But in the back of our minds, we know that you know, 90% of the people will, will reject us. A lot of times they'll be indifferent towards us. Sometimes they'll go along with us just to be nice, but we know they're not really getting it. And there is a sense that even though people don't accept the gospel and we go proclaim the gospel we don't get we don't get discouraged we continue we know that most people will reject it but when it's rejected it's almost a, a it's a boost to our own assurance to our own faith it builds our own faith we know that we're doing the right thing we know that this is true and so we can strive for the faith in our persecutions. It's a sense, of, it's a boost to our assurance because it, it says that the word of God is true. That all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And there is a sense it is true, as many have said before, that maybe we're not persecuted because we're not living godly. And that does not mean that um, 
we're not being nice enough. You know, there's this, this concept of, um, <clears throat> you know, the nice guy Christianity. Nice guy Christianity, which is, in a sense, what, what that means is that we have diminished Christianity or Christian living down to the lowest common denominator that we just need to be nice people. We need to be nice people. We need to be upstanding citizens, which is true. It's true, but that's not all. We need to proclaim the faith. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to say why we're nice. We need to, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And say, this is the way, this is the reason why I am the way I am. You know, mo most religions are moral. Most, you know, so, some, of the, some of the nicest, most moral people I have ever met have been in a cult. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Nice, kind people. Until you start to share the gospel with them. <laughs> and then the teeth come out. And you realize, yeah, they don't believe what I believe. They may say they do, but they don't. But we, can, we are to strive for the faith in our persecutions. And that is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for us. It's a sign of hope, a sign of assurance. Fourth, the fourth command Paul gives the Philippians in how to live for the gospel is that they are to suffer for Christ. They are to suffer for Christ. Verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And we are to suffer for Christ. And it's interesting what, what Paul says. He goes on. Um, he says, we are to suffer for Christ knowing that it is a gift. He say, says here, it has been granted. It has been given to you for Christ's sake to suffer for him. It's a gift. It has been given to you. The suffering is a gift. So long as it's suffering for Christ. One commentator, he writes this. He says, Paul could view suffering as a gift first because it yields proven character and hope. As it says in Romans chapter 5, that we have hope in our sufferings because it produces character and hope and perseverance. Second, it yields future glory. Romans 8, that, that we consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't, aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. And third, those who suffer for the gospel reflect Jesus' life since they are following the path that he took. The whole Christian life is, in a sense, being like Christ. We're to emulate Christ and, and we are being conformed into the image of Christ. And, and that means that as we live for Christ, we will be treated like Christ. People will oppose us. They'll be hostile to us. They'll mock us. They'll make fun of us. Just like they did with Jesus. You know, there's a, a, a lot of um, things which I am required to do as a pastor, which the Word of God commands me to do. 
and things which I am woefully inadequate, as Paul says, who is sufficient for these things. But the hardest thing for a pastor, and the same is true for any believer, the hardest thing for me is being like Jesus. Being like Jesus. Acting like him, speaking like him, serving like him, suffering like him. That's the hardest thing for a Christian. And it's the thing which we all are called to do. And if we do that, then that will bring opposition from the world and it will bring suffering. But it is a gift. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God because we are, in a sense, emulating Christ in his sufferings. Turn with me for a moment to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. <clears throat> Many of us know this verse. We've quote this verse. We relied on this verse. We've trusted in it. It's a good verse for us to memorize. James 1.17 says that every good thing given... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's a good verse. That's a good verse to memorize. It's a good verse that brings you hope and peace and comfort, that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. That's a verse that some of us might have on a doily somewhere, or a, a poster or something around the house. It's a good verse. But that verse is given, it's written in the context of trials and suffering. Because you look at, up at the top of James chapter 1 and verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And he goes on and on. And the whole context is one of suffering and trials. And so verse 17, the good thing given, the perfect gift, is the trial, is the suffering. Because it helps conform you to the image of Christ. It weans you off of the pleasures and the comforts of this world. And it helps you to focus your mind and your heart on things above and not on things below. And this is what Paul is alluding to here in verse 29 of Philippians chapter 1, is that suffering for Christ is a gift. It has been given to you. And so we suffer for Christ knowing that it is a gift, that God is sovereign, and he can take away the suffering at any time. As, as Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, uh, God gave me the thorn in the flesh. But three times I prayed that he would remove it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for power is perfected in weakness. So he could boast in Christ. He could boast in the power that God has given him. And also he could emulate Christ in his suffering, which is what we are called to do. To suffer like Christ and suffer for Christ. And we do that knowing that it is a gift. And second, knowing that Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered for you. Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him. 
to crush him. It's enough to look at the cross and to look at crucifixion and the torture of it and the physical pain and suffering that comes with crucifixion. And it wasn't just being nailed to the cross and the death, but everything that came before it, the flogging, the mocking, being hung up on the cross, which in that day and age was to be a public public right by a, a main thoroughfare so that everybody would see that you do not mess with Rome. This is what happens to enemies of the state. And you were to be left up there for several days, weeks, to not only die, but to have the birds eat your flesh and decompose and stink so that you would be a constant sign. This is crucifixion, but all the physical... Uh, Torture and suffering and mocking could not be compared to what happened um, as the wrath of God was being poured out upon Christ in a way which we don't completely understand, in a way which is mysterious that somehow in three hours he was able to pay for every sin for every believer who would ever trust in him for salvation on that cross. He suffered in a way which no one will ever suffer, no one could even comprehend. And when we suffer, we are to remember Christ's suffering, that he, he suffered for us. And this is not just in your persecutions, it's mainly in your persecutions, but some of us, we suffer just because we live in a sin-cursed world and the effects of age. And there's aches and pains. And many of you, you have pills and potions and lotions and things and to help you with your suffering. But sometimes that suffering is too much. And when that suffering is, seems unbearable, we're to remember Christ's suffering on our behalf. Peter says this in his epistle. His first epistle, to, he writes to those who are being persecuted, who are suffering for the sake of Christ. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 24. He says, For to this you have been called since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviling in return while suffering. He was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness by his wounds, you were healed. We suffer for Christ knowing that it is a gift from God to conform us into the image of Christ. And we suffer for Christ knowing that Christ suffered for you. And third, knowing that others have suffered too. First and foremost, Paul. He says in verse 30 of Philippians chapter 1, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. In a sense, as he says somewhere else, follow me as I follow Christ. Being willing to suffer for Christ. Being willing, as he says to the Colossians, to rejoice in his sufferings for their sake. Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church. And when he says this term, and many have written whole books and articles about that term to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, 
It doesn't mean that somehow uh, Christ, uh, his suffering wasn't complete to pay for our sins, but he's in a sense what he's saying is the whole world is against God, is at enmity with God, and, and, and they, would, um, they would afflict Christ more if they could. But since he's not here, we as his re representatives on earth, as his body, share in those afflictions. As the world hails its abuse against God, its rebellion against God, we're, we're the object of their hatred for God. That they would persecute us. And we as Paul would fill up in our bodies what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. But we also, we know that not only Paul has suffered too, but that the other apostles and early disciples have suffered for the faith, have suffered for Christ as all the apostles but John were martyred. Many of the early disciples were martyred. Many of the early church was on the run constantly, persecuted. That persecution from uh, the outside world and from the Roman government did not ease up for uh, almost 300 years. And still there was persecutions. There's always been persecutions. Always been suffering throughout the church age. Uh, most believers throughout church history have suffered. As I said uh, earlier this morning, that we are, in a sense, an anomaly in church history. We are blessed with peace and prosperity, with freedom, and it is an anomaly in church history. And that anomaly is soon coming to an end. As the world, it seems they're becoming more and more hostile to us, but in a sense, the world's always been hostile. It's just we have been blessed. This is how we are to suffer. We're to suffer for Christ, knowing that it is a gift, knowing that Christ suffered for us, and knowing that others have suffered too. You know, throughout this passage, uh, this, this main verb, this main command is that we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the Apostle Paul calls on the Philippians to do this while implying their Roman citizenship as an illustration to emphasize their heavenly citizenship in the kingdom of God. That we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And, and there's a famous passage in the Bible in which Jesus explains the nature of kingdom citizens. He explains what kingdom citizens look like, their behaviors, their characteristics, their manner of life. So we would know what it means to be a kingdom citizen. This is a famous passage, probably the greatest sermon which was ever delivered by no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the sermon on the mount. And I'd like you to see this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1 to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and he alludes to our heavenly citizenship, our citizen, citizenship as um, citizens of the kingdom, we, we need to be sure of the gospel, but we need to also be sure of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And Jesus tells us this as, you know, the, the Israelites for centuries were looking forward to the kingdom of God, that they have this 
hope of the kingdom of God coming that, that would come with the Messiah to establish this earthly kingdom. We, we know um, from the scriptures that that will happen in the millennium, in the millennial reign of Christ. But nonetheless, there is a spiritual aspect of the kingdom here in the church that we are to live as kingdom citizens. And when Jesus came, he told them what a kingdom citizen looks like. Matthew chapter 5, in what is the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he means is those who are impoverished in spirit, who know that they have nothing to offer God, spiritually speaking. That they are impoverished, they are, they are poor in spirit. That those who understand that, that they have nothing to offer God, are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about those who will mourn for their lost loved ones, but those who mourn over their own sin, who are broken in their spirit, who mourn over the fact that they are sinners. He says, they shall be comforted, because they know they're sinners. He said, blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who are humble, who are meek, who know that they are, in a sense, nothing. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you mourn over your own sin? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They are merciful because they know that God is merciful. And God has been merciful to them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That none of us is, in a sense, completely pure. But he's talking about those who desire to be pure, who long to be pure, who fight for purity. They shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are characteristics of kingdom citizens. These are characteristics of those who have been born again, of those who are in the kingdom, of those who are in the church, of those who are kingdom citizens. And the main implication, the main application is, does this describe you? Does this describe your lifestyle? Does this describe your attitude towards sin and towards God? Jesus says a lot through this sermon on the mount about kingdom citizens and what they look like. He tells us that we are to be salt and light. He tells us how we are to relate with one another, that we are to be forgiving, that we are uh, not to be self-righteous. He tells us how to pray. He tells us not to worry or be anxious about the things of this world, but to uh, store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he tells us to pray. He tells us to enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it. He tells us to enter through the narrow gate. But he ends this sermon with these Hard words. 
Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In a sense, those who are trying to earn their way to heaven. Those who are saying, Lord, Lord, look at me. Look at all the things I've done. Look at um, the things I've done in church or the things I've done in your name, in the service of you. For uh, look, look at all the things I've given. Look at all the positions I've held in, in, in church. And, and it matters nothing. It matters nothing. Because no one can merit salvation. No one can work his way to heaven. All we can do is, is what Jesus was alluding to in, in the beginning of his sermon. It's to recognize that we are broken, that we are poor in spirit, and, and mourn over our sin and, and seek a Savior who will redeem us from our sin, to trust in him, to hope in him, to, in a sense, understand the gospel. That Christ Jesus came into, world, into the world to save sinners. He didn't come for the righteous. And in a sense, none of us are righteous, but he didn't come for the self-righteous. He told the self-righteous Jews that tax collectors and the prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of heaven than you are. Because they know they're sinful. Because they know they need a savior. Because they know that apart from God reaching out to them, that they are condemned. And so they throw themselves on God's mercy and his grace. When we understand the depths of God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, then we can truly live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Jesus has another passage in Matthew chapter 13 as he uh, further tries to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like and what the kingdom citizens are like as he tells these parables of the kingdom. And he says this, Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And that, that, that's not to say that we can purchase our way into the kingdom. But it's to say that the kingdom is more valuable than anything this world could offer us. And we are, in, to, in a sense, to... Uh, let go of everything for the sake of the kingdom. To value the kingdom, to value the gospel, to value the church, to value heaven more than anything else that we have. And if we treasure the gospel and the kingdom like that, then we will live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel 
to which we have been called, worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We will stand firm in unity, we will strive for the faith, and we will suffer for Christ. Heavenly Father, too often, in fact, most of our lives, we are distracted by the things of this world. We go after earthly pleasures and comforts. We're fickle in our faith. We forget your clear commands. We, we often do what we please. All day long, for, for most of us, we, we ask the question, what do I want? What do I want to do? How do I want to spend my day? How do I want to spend my life? What, what, what's in it for me? But Lord, you have not created us for us, but for you. And that's good. Because you and you alone are good. Lord, please remind us of your gospel often. And for those of us who are here today who have not been born again, who may be deceived, who may be unsure, please remind them of the gospel. Help them to understand the gospel. Draw them to yourself and save them from your wrath. And Lord, for those of us who have been saved from your wrath, remind us of that often, that we would live lives worthy of of your gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.